You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Vancouver and con man alternated filling sandbags, one holding a bag open while the other one shoveled in the sticky clay. To Vancouver, each sandbag was just that, nothing more, one filled sandbag to be followed by the next. The small e-tool burned his blisters and sores. He watched the blood and pus from the jungle rot on his fingers and wrists smear in with the mud and the rainwater. He paused occasionally to wipe his hands on his trousers, not even thinking that he had to sleep in them. Everything soon had the same greasy consistency anyway, mixing in with the urine that he couldn't quite cut off because he was so cold, the semen from his last wet dream, the cocoa he'd spilled the day before, the snot he'd rubbed off, the pus from his skin ulcers, the blood from the popped leeches, and the tears he wiped away so nobody would see that he was homesick. Except for his size and the role that he'd taken on, or fallen into, Vancouver was no different from any other teenager in the platoon. He knew that the role gave the others heart, and he had to admit that he liked playing it, because of what it did for his friends and for himself. He liked the respect. Hell, he was almost a celebrity. But he was not ignorant of what it cost. Being on point scared him every time he took it yet something compelled him to take it every time. Vancouver stared down the trail, constantly scanning it, his eyes jerking with tension. Walking down a trail to save time, he knew, was an invitation for an ambush. Also, Robertson had smelled something. He was a good fire team leader and he'd been around a while. If Robertson was being cautious, there was good reason. But on point, there are always good reasons to be cautious, even if there is no hurry. The point man is all alone. It makes no difference if there's a fire team or entire battalion behind him. He sees no one, only shadows. At every turn lurks the possible ambush, and the point man is the first to go. Or, if the ambushers are particularly successful, they let the point man by and cut him off when they open up on the lieutenant and the radio operator. It's like walking a hundred feet up on a bending two-by-four with the wind blowing in sporadic gusts from different directions. There's no help, no rope, no friend to lean on. The point man is also blindfolded by the jungle. His ears are confused by every tiny sound behind him, obscuring the one sound that might save him. He wants to scream for the whole world to shut up. His hands sweat, making him worry that he won't be able to pull the trigger. He wants to piss even if he's just pissed five minutes ago. His heart thumps in his throat and chest. He waits out the eternity before the squad leader says it's time to rotate back into safety. Vancouver stopped thinking. 
Fear and exposure drove thought from his head. Only survival remained. As you already know, gentlemen, the 5th Marine Division continues to be involved in a combined cordon and search operation with the 1st Arvin Division. Our major objective, as you also know, continues to be Cam Low. Mulvaney turned to the large map and began outlining the next day's plan of the ongoing operation, all the while feeling that somehow he had let his regiment down. Working with the goddamn gooks wasn't his idea of fighting a war, particularly when all that would probably happen was a few old political scores would get settled in Cam Low. Some SEAL teams had been operating in the villages for several years now, assassinating known Viet Cong leaders. But where the fuck did that information come from? Supposedly from the CIA, but then none of those spooks were hanging out in the villages. Christ, they're all six-foot-two white boys from Yale. So where did the spooks get their information? Probably from one of the damn secret societies who were just fingering a leader of another secret society over the control of some drug market and getting their dirty work done courtesy of the United States Navy. Any Viet Cong leadership, if the Viet Cong existed in any force there at all after their buddies from the north set them up to be obliterated by American firepower during Tet, would be long gone by the time all the security leaks from the Arvin trickled down. Yes, Mulvaney mused, power in the secret societies would definitely shift after Cam Low, and the spooks would be played for suckers, and his marines would pay the price. He wanted to kick the CIA's ass and break the fucking Arvin's scrawny necks. He knew he shouldn't drink so much, especially alone, but he was alone a lot. After all, he was the battalion commander. It was supposed to be lonely at the top. What did he expect? The easy camaraderie of the bachelor officer's quarters? But another voice reproved him. He ought to be on friendlier terms with the other battalion commanders in the regiment, or some of the regimental staff of his own age and rank. He'd tried. He asked Lieutenant Colonel Lowe, who'd been given 224 over for dinner the other night. He'd broken out new cigars and some really good wine, but it'd been awkward. Lowe had been playing football for Annapolis while Simpson was freezing his ass off in Korea, but here he was, three years younger than Simpson and at the same place. But that was just it, Annapolis. Simpson has worked his way through Georgia State and never had time to learn how to socialize. So he wasn't a socializer like Lowe or Blakely. Never was. Never would be. So what? So he was alone. So what? He wasn't here to have a good time. He was here to kill gooks. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Karl Marlantis graduated from Yale University and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. He served as a Marine in Vietnam where he was awarded the Navy Cross, the Bronze Star, two Navy Commendation Medals for Valor, two Purple Hearts, and ten Air Medals. His first novel is Matterhorn. Thank you for joining me, Carl. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Carl, it strikes me when I read this book that it, it recreates an entire world for us that is as alien as anything that we might encounter in outer space. It's funny that you say that because I had some critics say that this book would probably be on a fantasy and fiction, you know, science fiction list because just because of that, because what those writers do is create other worlds. I suppose the difference is that I was in that one, and uh, I tried very hard to do that. That's what, that was one of the objectives. Well, one of the things that struck me immediately going in um, it. I have to say that the book this most reminded me of was Dune. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's interesting. (laughs) Because, well, you start out with a a chain of command. You Mm -hmm. give us a map. You give us a glossary, and we need that glossary. So talk about your decision as a writer to set up the reader, front load the reader with a a bunch of information that they really need going in. That came about, not because of my idea, but because I'd given the manuscript to a a couple of women friends of mine. And uh, they they talked to you afterwards? They (laughs) talked, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they did. And they they both said, you know, listen, I mean, even the Foresight saga's got a genealogy on the front page. And and we don't know the difference between a platoon and a division and whether an AK-47 is a can opener or a weapon. And then you just need to sort of help us along. Because I had I had been trying to sort of set it in the text, and uh, they said, "No, oh, gosh, just just put a put a glossary, and then just then just put put the foresight saga, you know, diagram up front, and it would really help." And so I, that's how it got added. Well, let's talk about your. You've been writing this book for a long time. Um, talk about how you came to be in the place that this book talks about. How did you? What made you decide to? back in 1967 to go to Vietnam. It was a choice, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It was It was actually an earlier choice. I, I grew up in a little logging town in, in Oregon, and uh, I graduated from high school in 1963. And back then, um, times were really different. First of all, every boy there felt that they sort of owed time to what we called the service, I mean, all our dads were in the service in World War II. It was, that's what it was called, the service. That was the attitude. It's like, well, you owed, you, know, you owed your country three years or whatever it was, and then you could come back and, you know, and the girls sort of, you know, owed the country babies. I mean, we were very traditional in that regard. So, and if you were a good athlete and I was a good athlete, well, then you joined the Marines and, you know, you went down to some place called um, San Diego and came back, you know, three inches taller and four inches broader at the shoulder. And that looked pretty good too. So I signed up and I got into a, a, a program. The Marines put me into the Marine Corps Reserve. And then I got to go to college all on my own because, you know, the Marines said, well, you get to be a Marine after college. But the thing was, I was in college uh, and graduated in 1967. And I had won the Rhodes Scholarship. And uh, I thought, well, the war was going on by that time. And I was supposed to be commissioned as a second lieutenant right after I graduated because I'd been through boot camp and all this program. And I was. So I wrote to the Marine Corps, and they said, well, 
this is quite an honor. And uh, so they assigned me to Oxford, which was really great of them because they were short of junior officers. But when I got to Oxford, um, my friends from high school had been over there or were there at the moment. We lost uh, five from my high school. And guys that I'd been through training with were going over there. And there I was. I started to feel like I'm just hiding behind privilege here. And I was sort of a black and white thinker. I think I still am. I was like, you know, either you've got to go to Sweden and desert. And it wasn't draft dodging because it was desertion because I was in already. Or you got to go, but you just can't stay here. And so I, you know, after a, a, a fairly hard first term, I... I just finally decided that the thing to do was 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 to go. I, I couldn't stand not ever being able to come home again. When you went through boot camp, did you enjoy boot camp? Did you like that kind of experience, the, the being in the Marines? Was that something that you liked? You, you're obviously a scholar and, and uh, a significant scholar at that. So yeah. uh, how how did that those two people who seem very different uh, fit into the same body? <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it to me, I thought it was funny. I mean, I mean, they were they would do things that would just you know. I mean, the only thing I can talk was shenanigans. I never took it seriously. I mean, and I I loved doing things like you know climbing ropes and jumping over obstacles. Because I you know I'm, I was I was a football player and I, I thought it was great. And you know, and the the sergeants and you know drill instructors would turn you upside down and stick you in a in a locker and start pounding on it and saying you know are you happy in there and and yes, sir. Well, you don't sound happy. Yes, sir. I'm real happy. Well, how do I know you're happy? And then there'd be this break, and then the kid in the locker would go smile, 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 smile. You know, I mean stuff like that. Well, someone would laugh, you know. And then so then the guy turned him the other way upside down, looked like a yin yang symbol, and the two of them would be in the locker together. I mean, to me, you know, some people say, well, that looks just like brutal torture. To me, I just thought, well, this, these guys are just, you know, I just put put up with it, and I thought it was funny. This sounds like one of the things that strikes me about this book um, and, and what you are just telling me is there's this camaraderie, uh, of, camaraderie of, of teenage boys. Yeah. And, and these are our teenagers. Absolutely. Even if they're in, you guys are in your 20s, you're barely – you're certainly not mature at that age. Having them, I know. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, talk about uh, how that worked for you, you know – as a scholar, here you are, you've got some distance and some education. Mm -hmm. and when you went back into that world, um, how rude was the shock? Well, it, it, interesting. I mean, first of all, the age, I once did a, a calculation because I just, uh, you know, you get bored. And so I added up all the, all the ages and it came out in my company to something like 18 and nine months was the average. Basically, everybody there was just out of high school. I was the second oldest in the company. I was 23 because I had gone to college and then had that one term where I was trying to make up my mind. And the company commander was six months older than I was. And uh, we had some sergeants that were in their late 20s. They were the old, old men, but they, uh, at, at one point they were all gone. So there was, I was the second oldest in the company. And it was sort of like coming back and having having your 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 kid brother, you know, reporting to you. I mean, that was sort of the way it felt to me because I wasn't that much older, and it was always difficult uh, when you're a junior officer to not just become one of the guys because 
that's not good. On the other hand, if you're way too far away from them, that's not good either. It's a difficult tightrope to walk. And so my only problem really was uh, trying to just uh, watch myself and just, and, and I had to realize, I mean, when, you know, one of those are looking at me, I'm the lieutenant, you know, and they're going to see me very differently. And I'm just sort of going like, well, you know, it's just my kid brother here. But I've got I've got to be the one that says you're on point today, and that's where that's where it changes. Now, um, there's a scene in here where Mellis, who's kind of your stand-in, sort of, mm. um, is in a completely new situation, and he decides he has to. He says, "I should be taking notes." Now, <laughs> this makes me wonder whether you were a writer before you went into this. Before you know, were you the kind of kid who was writing uh, stories during high school and publishing in the paper and writing in college? You have to write a lot in college, anyway. Yeah. And how much of that did you take with you out there into the jungle? Well, I was one of those kids. I mean, my cousin and I wrote a science fiction thriller when we were 10, you know, space aliens, and we had a, an electric shield that protected the Earth, and we had to we had to save that from the, I mean, you know, so I mean, I was doing that when I was 10. And then I, I wrote when I was in high school, and I wrote when I was in college. I won a literary prize when I was in college. So I definitely had already been launched on the path of writing. Um, but the thing about taking notes, I mean, the thing that's interesting about writing this is that every second lieutenant virtually goes through the same thing. So people say, well, that second lieutenant's you. Well, I'm every second lieutenant because you get there, you're confused. And the Marine Corps did a great job of training as best they could. But you're just so scared that you're going to make a mistake. So half of them, I, I would watch them, they'd have a little notebook and they'd be writing something down because maybe I'll forget. And, and, you know, if you forget something in business, well, you know, you can always have another appointment, but people die if you forget something in, in combat. So, you know, you're nervous and scared. So that's where that writing stuff comes from. Now, uh, I, I want to talk about the book, too, which closely, uh, as I understand it, mirrors your own experience. Yes. In the sense that everything that I wrote about. I took to heart that, you know, you write what you know about. Um, many of the scenes in the book weren't exactly, you know, me living through a scene like that. Some of them were friends of mine that told me their stories that, that would be put in there. But I've been on assaults and I've been in firefights and I've been ambushed and I have strung ambushes. So I know all that terrain. And then I would write the scene um, for the specific point in the narrative. But I would have in my, my mind clearly images from my own experiences. One of the things that uh, I found very unexpected about this book, we get in and I'd say in the first 40 pages, I encountered more leeches in this book <laughs> than I will ever encounter in my entire life, I hope. And, and there's a sense of fear and terror that hangs over this from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Talk about uh, how you felt and how you translated that into the lives of the characters. Well, first of all, the scene, the, the story is set in the mountains, in the jungle. And for most Americans who are urban, I mean, I don't know what percentage of the United States live in towns above a million, but it's pretty darn large. First of all, you are in an alien world. I mean, you don't know what is actually out there and you've read read the stories and probably a lot of space monster stories as well but that the jungle is you know i came in the book to say it was indifferent but when you first get there you have the feeling it's hostile 
It really doesn't care about you. Um, and the leeches were just, they were everywhere. They dropped off the trees. If you waded through, you know, the grass, they jumped on you. And they were tiny little things you would hardly notice. But once they start sucking your blood, well, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. They go, oh, my God, that thing. And I think one of the great uh, fears was that one of these leeches would get into some place in your body that would just be really difficult. And I don't know if we want to go into that. But it's, it's, so it was, it was constantly sort of like, yuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, a large yuck factor. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me, given the yuck factor, the terror, the the grim situation that you face here, is I have to admit, I found there was a lot of humor in this book. I, I thought it was relatively kind of funny. And, mm-hmm. and I think the, that's deliberate on your part. It's not jokes, but it's the perspective, uh, a very deadpan humor, graveyard, literally, graveyard humor yeah. perspective. You know, um, I tried very hard to convey that because what I think to a large extent gets you through situations like that is that kind of humor. That's That humor comes out of the situation of, I'm going to deal with this. And you start to crank jokes about it. And it, it allows you to, to make headway. I, I love this quote by wavy gravy, which is without a sense of humor, it just isn't funny. <laughs> and that was my attitude. It's very Zen in a way. It's very, mm-hmm. very Buddhist. There it is. is a f- refrain. And that's like, that's a wry comment. It's like, uh, there it is. But it's also a very Buddhist in the moment. This is what you're dealing with. You can carp, you can cry, you can do anything you want. Why not make a joke out of it? Because it's going to be a lot easier on you. Well, as your characters say repeatedly, what are you? What are they going to do? Cut your hair and send you to <laughs> Vietnam? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, this book also. Um, one of the things that that I think is is very interesting and, and complicated and beautifully wrought in a literary, purely literary terms, mm-hmm. is the. Um, the society, the social setups, the complicated politics, the very interesting uh, race relations, class relations, the way these people relate, we have to um, realize that what you have is you have some, what, a couple hundred uh, teenagers, some black, some white, all of them heavily armed. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you you can imagine that this is not a a situation that that is going to be easy to deal with. No. Um, Racial tension is hardly – that's an understatement for – you know, I mean, because they're not just teenagers. They have 30 times the testosterone going through their bodies at any other time in their life. And back then, I mean, we have made enormous progress particularly in the military, with race relations. But in 1960s, I will stand here and say that it was the United States military that integrated this country because where it finally had to work, had to work, you had to trust that guy from the other race. That basically, I mean, I grew up in a town, there were no African-Americans. There wasn't an African-American for 100 miles from where I lived. And suddenly, there I am, like... Hmm. Well, you know, and I because because I didn't grow up, you know, where there was a lot of uh, racial tension. I was pretty easy about about uh, not being prejudiced, and I talk about that. But we're we're in a racist society. 
you can't look at someone from the other race. A black man can't look at a white man and vice versa without that filter coming in, no matter how hard they try to not let it come in. And back in the 60s, I mean, there were snipers in Newark and Detroit was going up in flames and Martin Luther King had been assassinated. I mean, the Black Panthers, scary, scary times. And that was all going on in Vietnam simultaneously with trying to fight a war. Well, I, I, I just, when I was reading some of these scenes, I was imagining um, that somebody in Congress would propose, this is how we're going to accomplish integration. We're going to take all the angry white boys from this high school. We're going to take all the angry black boys from this high school. Right. We're going to put them in the same high school, and we're going to give them guns. Yes. that Yes, that's great. I mean, they had something, I mean, you know, I could go crazy about this, but they had something called... Project 100,000, and somebody in Congress or somewhere in Washington, D.C., which has been defined as 23 square miles surrounded by reality, the, um, they said, well, we're going we're gonna to help people get ahead in society by taking the people with the lowest entry scores and the worst grades and putting them into the Marine Corps. Well, as soon as they showed up, we put them on a helicopter and medevac them out for stupidity, basically, because, I mean, your lives are at stake. And so somebody said, this is a great idea. They'd put them out in the bush with the, with the, you know, the grunts. It was like overweight, um, bad attitude, uh, you know, not real intelligent. It's like, this is not someone you want to have your back. I would guess within a day or two, we'd sort them out and we'd, you know, 80% of that project, whatever it was, just got sent back. God knows what happened to them, you know, but they, we didn't want them. Boy, uh, Mellis is a really fascinating character. He he's very complicated, and, and one of the things that you know we were talking earlier about how this book has a lot of uh, fear and terror in it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, because there's this sense that at any t second anything could happen for no reason, any reason. It could be your 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 people in your platoon. It could be the people back on base sending a plane out to, to spray you or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, with the, one of the things that I found really interesting was that Mellis was afraid to show fear. He was more afraid to show fear than to do something that he feared. And that speaks to the politics of the situation, too. I don't, yeah, it's politics. It's uh, how you're raised in this country. You know, manhood's at stake. Um, also, pride. Um, you know, I, I think, I've read quite a few books, uh, you know, nonfiction books about men in combat. And uh, it isn't patriotism that sends you up the hill. It's I don't want to let my friends down that sends you up the hill and you're all thrown into the situation and you're not going to be the one that says, ah, I'm out of here. Sorry, you guys do it on your own, which is the rational response. You know, it's like, I don't know these guys on top of the hill. They're shooting at us and I don't even know them. You know, like I'm out of here. But you don't do that because you don't want to leave your friends and and they don't want to leave their friends. And that's one of those things that, that uh, that's one of the things that makes it work. Um, and so showing fear if you're the lieutenant is letting people down because they're looking at you and they're going like, well, don't you know what to do? And it's like, well, if I tell them I really don't know what to do, that's not going to be real good, you know? And so Mellis is in that situation. Like I said, that character uh, is like most lieutenants uh, because that's the situation they're thrown into. Well, um, we also get... It's interesting, the perspectives of the war, and I'm wondering if you talk about architecting this in, in the novel. On one hand, we get this 
you know, the I'm walking through a jungle filled with leeches and elephant grass that's slicing my skin to, <laughs> to pieces. And it's so close, I can really barely see beyond where my hand is. We get this very up close and personal and grittily rendered mm-hmm. vision of the war. But you also, too, manage to, through the things that happen to these people, the orders they receive and glimpses of the officers give us a bigger picture of how the war is run, not well. Mm-hmm. And So talk about architecting those two visions of the war, the gritty part on the ground and the inept uh, morons running things at, at top. And some of them actually have some skills too. Don't, yeah, I, I want to be sure to point out that I tried to be fair. Mm-hmm. The it's a work of fiction. It's not a documentary. And so I chose people for the you know antagonists who were drank too much. But he's a sympathetic character to me mm-hmm. and who was ambitious. And all of these things, I mean, happen in corporate life, in school systems. I mean, you know the people, well, he drinks a little too much or, oh, you know, she's really ambitious. But it, it doesn't hurt anybody that much. So these are human, common human f- foibles and failings. It's just that they get magnified in a combat war situation to where they become extremely serious and you cannot tolerate these small foibles. And that's one of the things that I think the military tries to drill into people, the impeccable uh, attention that you have to pay because lives are at stake. But people don't do that. They're human. They don't pay attention. I mean, you know, the company ran out of food because a guy had too many drinks that night and forgot, oh, God, I got confused and I sent this here instead of that. It wouldn't have been a big deal if it had been back at some training situation. They'd have gone to the chow anyway. But there, it's huge. And I also wanted to, as I said, to show that that point, that it's the small foibles that cause the misery. They're not evil people. And at the same time, there were in Vietnam very competent senior officers who were very frustrated. A lot of these guys were World War II veterans. And they were now put into positions where they were dealing with politics. There were Marine, you know, junior officers in World War II, and then 20 years later, they're dealing with very odd politics. And and uh, I think that they themselves had to suffer from being out of out of their element to a large extent. That's this character, Mulvaney, who's a full colonel. And, and uh, I liked him as a character because he wanted to do right, and he just was hemmed in all the time by just... Well, the passage I read about, you know, trying to get some political operation done, it was just, to him it was just being malused, I think is the right word. You entered the perspectives of a lot of people in this book, and and again, you spent a long time uh, writing it. Talk about living with these people in your mind for 30 years. It's like having a, 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 a running a company or something. It must have been that close to you. Yeah. Um, I told somebody just, just a few days ago, they said, you know, what does it feel like to suddenly have the book out and people writing interviews and stuff? And you must feel great, you know. And I said, it actually feels more like an identity crisis because I've lived with it so long and my relatives sort of rolling their eyes, you know, oh, Carl's book, you know. I mean, because, I mean, and my kids said, you know, weekends, oh, there's dad in the basement. What's he doing? He's working on the book, you know. And and it became, really, it's that, um, that was part of my identity for so long. But one of the things that was really good about not getting it published right away is that 
luckily, I matured over 30 years, and all those characters could mature with me. And a great deal of, of the, uh, what's it called, the character arc of these characters, which takes place in a very short time in the book, took me 30 years to get. But I could write that back into the characters. So the characters are way deeper, way more uh, strongly uh, filled out. And I have a, a greater understanding of them because it took so long to get it done. That's one thing I wanted to talk about is the, the, the character arcs for, for these people. Um, there's You have a big cast in this book. Yeah. There's, there are, there's a lot of people in this book. They're important to the plot structure. They're important to the narrative. And they're important to the interpersonal characterizations. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like you to talk about is, as a writer, over all this time... Um, Creating, you know, the arc from from success to failure, from life to death, uh, you know, from whatever. Talk about. I mean, did you, as a writer, did you have like spreadsheets or or big diagrams, mm. Venn diagrams on the wall, or was this all just one big chunk of prose that you carved <laughs> away? I guess like uh, Michelangelo trying to finding <laughs> find this the the sculpture in the block of uh, oh, marble. A little of both. First of all, I I had done a, a serious outline. <clears throat> and back then, I, I started before there was a computer. I had, you know, uh, what are they called? Three by eight cards, five by eight cards. And I had those all over the floor. And I'd, you know, put those around to try and get the structure. I actually wrote sketches of these characters. I wrote I wrote stories about them when they were teenagers or when they, when they were four years old. And uh, those are just stuck away from us. I don't even... I, I think I might still have them, but I got to know them as children so that I could understand what, how they got, what would motivate them when they were older. And, um, and I have to admit that one of the things that I did is I read Tolstoy several times because he had the same problem. He had an enormous number of people and what, how would, how did he do it? And, you know, so I had, I, you know, I read him first, I have to admit, I tried to read him about three times before I could get into it. And then once I did, I never could stop. And then I'd go back, you know, some years later, and I would say, okay, how did how did this Prince Andre guy start out? And how did he end up, you know, and what were the actual techniques that he used to try? And so, I mean, that helped too. So that's, that's why I, I worked with it. I, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that that's fascinating and that makes us such a powerful reading experience is because it works on a couple of very 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 different levels I think as a you know almost a first person autobiography even though it's fiction mm-hmm. um, the kind of the grit the immersiveness the you are there feeling mm-hmm. but you also have filtered you know 30 years of of reading and writing and a lot of Works have been written in between the time you came out of the, the, mm-hmm. the service and the time this book was published. So there's a literary level to this too, and the prose is beautiful. the The construction is is flawless in many ways. Talk about integrating, you know, leeches and, and uh, uh, Dostoevsky. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, um, there is an underlying mythological. Uh, I don't know called subtext or basis to it, and uh, that's the Parsifal myth, mm-hmm. which is the myth of learning compassion as a young man, learning when it's appropriate to step beyond society's rules, uh, 
and uh, that that informs the book to a, a large extent. There's a lot of symbolism in the book that deals with that. It's not at all. Uh, I don't even expect a reader, uh, you know, unless he's someone like me, you know, to to really just pick up on the symbolism. But that I hope reverberates unconsciously with people. I mean, you know, I mean that that. Uh, Tin coffee cup of of Hawks is very important to mm-hmm. to Mellis, and when he finally is able to carry it for himself, I mean that's that shows the the reader that finally he's gotten there, mm-hmm. and he gets there through considerable pain. Um, so those, yeah, the, the different levels were consciously thought of. Uh, one of the things that that uh, the the prose in this book is is so beautifully wrought. On so Thanks. many levels and so immersive, uh, did you? H- how much rewriting did you do? And and I, I, well, obviously a lot. But <laughs> I mean, how much do you feel that this was the result of polishing, and how much do you feel this was the result of passion? Oh boy, <clears throat> I would say that the that the um, the prose that that is really good surprises me as much as the reader because I'll be in it and suddenly I'll go like wow that would you you hit it today you know and feel great of course then there's five days going between that time we're going oh Christ I know nothing's happening that's why novelists in my opinion have to go to work every day because you don't just say I'll write it when it happens if you're not there when it happens it won't get down and uh, so so that's my view on that. The conscious honing, like you say, the sort of Michelangelo having a slab of marble and seeing if you can find David inside of it, that is the editing process, bringing, bringing a lot of that uh, stuff that was just kind of fun to write. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And going like, oh, come on, Carl, it really isn't part of the narrative. And having to grit my teeth and throw it out, that's very conscious and that's work. In, in this novel... Uh, one of the, I guess, somewhat surprising um, aspects of it is we talked about some of your influences. Uh, Catch-22, this novel is just filled with them. It's it's as if um, everything comes with a barbed hook that goes in easily and sets hard. <laughs> every aspect of everything everybody does. So talk about, you know, for example, you talked about the second lieutenants and how they will break in a new officer. Mm-hmm. Everybody under him suffers. About the time he's competent, they whisk him out and send him somebody else who's incompetent. Yeah. And this is very indicative of many of the things that happen in the book. Well, you know, that isn't fiction. And it was it was something that I thought was really not a very smart idea and that the grunts thought was the stupidest thing they'd ever run into because they somebody had the idea that we have to, you know, train all these second lieutenants. I mean, we need second lieutenants to run the, the motor pools and we need them to do, get the supplies out there. And in my opinion, they don't need to be rifle platoon commanders because just that thing, most of them die very early in their careers because they make mistakes. And they, they're not savvy, and their their reactions are slow. Uh, and by the time they get to the point where that is less likely to happen, in Vietnam, they would sometimes pull them because, you know, they had another lieutenant coming in or because they thought, well, he's had 90 days, now we can send him to the motor pool, but just in case we need him to run a platoon later. And I just sort of thought, well, you know, I, I just... 
I hope they're still alive, but they're probably not. But the ones who made that policy, I'll just say, I beg to differ with you. I think once you get a trained infantry officer, you need to then take advantage of the, of, of the experience. So there, it wasn't part of the novel. It was, I'm, I'm trying to create a real world here. Mm-hmm. It was reality. It, it really is an, an exercise in world building. We talked about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, the jungle itself is something of a character in, in this book. Mm-hmm. It's implacable. It's impenetrable. It's, it's uh, unknowable, I think, is, is the problem with that. Uh, and it's hard for us. We live in a kind of a temperate climate where, you know, it's sunny and rains. And in this book, it, and we've seen lot, I've seen lots of like, movies and for what it's worth, and you see the jungle, it's kind of sunny or something. Mm-hmm. This is like being living in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Might have reflected my childhood from the Oregon coast, but, yeah, you know. Yeah, with, the, with the, that kind of jungle. Talk about creating that environment in prose. All right. There, hmm, great question. I got to think. <laughs> give me a time to think about this. Uh, one thing jumps to my mind. I was very conscious of of the jungle as the uh, sort of I don't know how to call it. Sort of the unconscious. I mean that that it's a symbol of the unconscious. I mean we have this little bit of of civilization on this little hilltop surrounded by barbed wire and beneath it, I mean, there's the ego and beneath it is this unconscious seething life that is impenetrable to our small minds. And that was very much on my mind, the symbolism of it. The other thing is don't forget that this was set in the monsoon period and it rains all the time during the monsoon period. And so the the Seattle like uh, weather conditions were just the way it was when you were in the jungle in the monsoons, and we were very high, five thousand feet, you know. So it was cool up there. It wasn't wasn't like down in the lowlands where it was hot. And so again, uh, that's just very true to the setting. So there was a symbolic, psychological. I don't know what the right word is. Symbolic is probably best uh, use of the jungle, and then there was the reality again, which is just this is the way. I remember it. This is something you do very well, is to marry the grittily real and to create it in language in such a way. And you do this on a number of levels and a number of aspects with a more symbolic or literary feel, you know, or theme. And I think one of the things that's nice is that we're so immersed in the reality that you create that the literary themes and experience bubbles up within. We don't say, oh, here he's cribbing from this book. Here, this, <laughs> right. is, this is Naked in the Dead. This is mm-hmm. you know, War and Peace. It's all kind of those same. It's a uni- The universal themes mm-hmm. bubble up underneath. Yeah, thank you. Um, no, I, I, well, you know, I read a lot, and I, I, I'm fully aware of most of the symbolism of the book, but even, even some of the things that were in there, you know, some reader had pointed out to me, like, oh, you know, that's true. That's probably came out of my own unconscious. But, um, yeah, I, I uh, keep keep me on, on target here. You asked me a question. I'm afraid I'm not answering it. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, to, to talk about how you know you have these kind of universal oh, themes. Yeah. No. Again, I, yeah, I was, I was. Um, it would be like this. It, it, it's it, those themes are in 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 my 
in my mind, I'm focusing primarily on, on the narrative and trying to make it a good story. But I know what I'm dealing with at a deeper level, but I did not want anybody to see it. I didn't want it to jump out. But my theory is I sort of, I sort of, I guess, you know, go along with T.S. Eliot, which is that we've had literature for 3,000 some odd years in the the West. And all of the images and the attempts that have gone on before do get wrapped up in in our literature and i wanted very much to be part of the stream and and so if i had a chance and i knew where i was in the book and i thought this is a good point where i could put something in that would reverberate hopefully not noticed and uh but so i i was trying to i guess sneak it in uh because of, of this theory that you get a the reader gets uh uh you know, a vibration from this deep stuff that has been in our culture for a long time. One of the the things we see is that I'd say the lion's share of, of what transpires here and what these men do is futile and, mm-hmm. and often entirely pointless, building bunkers that they abandon immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about... Um, your feelings when you were there, getting how did you get through that feeling of futility and, and then bringing that to the literary level as well? Hmm. When I joined the Marine Corps, I can remember arguing with people like when I was a sophomore in college saying, well, an American president wouldn't lie to Americans. And I that, that line I put in when this Mellis is talking to his girlfriend. And, and they laughed because, you know, I was pretty naive when I was 19. By the time I got there, you know, it was look, starting to look pretty suspect. But I had already joined. I was already in and I had my friends there. And, it, and that's when I began to realize that the focus of my involvement in the war was no longer anything about national politics. I felt a connection with guys I'd gone through training with, and I had a sense that I could be a good officer and I could try and get them through, get the job done with the minimal amount of dead people. So the way you got through, quite frankly, was that you shifted your loyalties lower and lower. And I consciously did that in the novel. after a while, you see that these characters, the only thing that they are loyal to is their own group, their own company. And I've talked to World War II veterans, and they said, you know, that was a different war. I mean, you know, it was sort of God on our side, and we had the evil Nazis or the Tojo. And they said, well, we didn't think of that when we were fighting. We just thought of our friends. And I went, well, that doesn't change. It's surprising um, to read this novel set in a war, you know, 40 years ago, how universal and how applicable it seems to today. And, and you have a great line in here where uh, one of the characters asks, "What? What are we? What are we here for? Gold, oil, uranium, right. something?" And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me something concrete. I mean, if we could just, yeah, I mean, I mean, God, if we could just, just storm the beaches and, you know, at least, you know, grab the women and the gold and then leave like the Vikings, you know, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. It didn't make sense. 
I mean, because it was like, well, on the one hand, we have the domino theory, and then, you know, and then the diplomats are, we don't know if it should be a square table or a round table. I mean, to a 19-year-old, that's like, what are you guys thinking up there? You know, and so, yeah, I, and in the the book, the central metaphor, I guess that's, that's what it is, of the book, or maybe it's a symbol, is Matterhorn, the mountain. It's for the Vietnam War. We we did it to ourselves. We We entered it. We built it. And we assaulted it, and we killed a whole lot of ourselves and a whole lot of them, and then we abandoned it. And that's that's Matterhorn. That's the the in, on the smaller level, they build it, they make it almost impregnable. They're ordered to abandon it, and uh, they have to take it back again. And then what? They abandon it again. And to me, it was the whole war. I mean, we left, we abandoned Vietnam. Why were we there in the first place? That question remains. I think that. If I tried to step back and see it in the eyes of policymakers in 1965, I could understand that they were frightened, that they thought, well, you know, communism is spreading. I don't know. I can't get into their heads. But looking at it through the eyes of perspective, we went over there. We had a big fight, and then we left it, and now we're, you know, trading with them. And it's like, I wonder what that was all about. One, there are many scenes in here that are kind of surreal and uh, absurd and, and all, always, of course, frightening. Uh, there's a scene where somebody gets eaten by a tiger. There's a scene where uh, they, they are looking at a plane and realize that they're being uh, getting sprayed with Agent Orange. Talk about uh, that sense of the absurd and, and how you experienced it in when you were there. Did you like feel like... Uh, this doesn't even make sense in the real world. <clears throat> well, both of those incidences happened. Uh, one one good friend of mine was in a company that was actually in the same battalion I was in, and they lost a guy to a tiger. And they had to go out and find him, and they found a, a half-eaten body finally and had to send it home. And I can remember going like, what are you going to tell his mother you know, I mean, well, here's half, and I'm sorry, but a tiger's got the other half. A tiger? and But that was real. And, and you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, Camus and all these people, you know, life is absurd at one level. And it, the, the problem is, how do you try to uh, cope with this, this absurdity? I mean, because you can, you can go into despair and say it's absurd. Well, why don't you just go shoot yourself? Uh, or you can laugh about it, or you can try and find meaning, uh, religion, God, spirituality, all these things are human ways of coping, which, with what I think, absurd things happen to us. I mean, the Agent Orange thing, a friend of mine died from Agent Orange uh, some years later, obviously, because he had been sprayed, and the only place on his head that didn't have cancer was under his helmet line. Boy. Uh, one of the things we see is um, uh, from the bigger picture is uh, uh, a nation fighting a war kind of badly. Mm -hmm. and, and this is apparently not a lesson we learn as a nation. Um, but it interested me that uh, a lot of the the problems were kind of like managerial issues that, that you know, if you were, did this kind of stuff in a corporation, they'd say, you're out of here, buddy. You can't, you, you can't be running. If you can't, if you make a mistake reading a map where reading a map is really important, we got to find somebody to replace you. You can go over and sweep the floors or something. Yeah. 
Well, you tried to to move those people out, but the problem is, is that is let's take the character that you're talking about. Um, he was a, a, a motor transport officer who had been sent out there to uh, learn how to lead a rifle platoon, and he was terrible at reading a map. Okay, F- first of all, he's out there, and you have to have some reason to tell the higher-ups that he's totally incompetent, which means you have to buck the decision to send him out in the first place, which was that he's learning how to do it. So, well, of course he's new, and he doesn't know yet how to read a map. Um, And there's a universal problem. Most junior officers, when they're put in the bush, at some level are totally incompetent because, I mean, they've been trained, but... Uh, there's a lot of tricks to learn in combat that, that takes that, that time period. The second one is there's nobody to replace him. They were short of junior officers all the time. And the third thing is is that you're in situations where you can't replace him because it's, 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 uh, uh, there's no choppers. They're, everybody's busy. I mean, his own unit is engaged. It's out there now, and now, he, now he's lost. And uh, so all of those factors lead to sort of trying to limp along. And there's workarounds. I mean, a lot of the incompetent people ended up leaning on competent, you know, 19-year-olds. I had one friend say that for the first month or two of his tour, he said his radio operator probably did more platoon leading than he did until he finally learned the ropes. And he was very competent. And once he learned the ropes, he was a great officer. But it's that beginning thing. So... Is this one of these guys that's going to learn fast and turn into a good one, or is he just not any good? Well, after a while, you figure it out and you get him out, but you don't get him out right away. And I'll tell you, it's a secret. I've been in corporate life. You don't get the incompetent ones out of the way in corporate life either. That's a myth. <laughs> uh, how do you get the incompetent ones out when they when they don't uh, when they don't go and they don't get fired from above or transferred from above? Well, obviously, there's the. Uh, the horrible way, which is a, quote, accident happens to them. Um, and uh, that has gone on in, in combat ever since Genghis Khan. The troops will protect themselves. And uh, I know, talking to my own father, he said that, you know, there was an incompetent uh, officer that, oddly enough, died in, in, in combat, but uh, everybody knew that he was actually just shot. Because they find the, the people that were whose lives were at stake didn't know how to solve it, and everybody's got an M16 or back then an M1. The other one is that finally somebody just says, "I mean, we had a, a lieutenant that was given to it. He was he was just no good." And uh, I got a, a a radio call from his platoon sergeant, who was a kid. He was about 21 years old, and I said, "Where's where's the lieutenant?" He's walking in the middle of the platoon, sir. And I went, uh-oh. And I said, uh, without a radio? Yes. So I said, okay. And so I knew what had happened. He had, this guy had just taken charge and put the guy in the back. And this guy was scared, and he accepted. So when he got back in from, from that particular patrol, we just put him on a chopper. And it was just goodbye. And we actually, we actually had a lower rope down. And we tied him on it, and I remember him being hoisted up out of the jungle. I don't know what happened to him, but the skipper just said, I don't care what you do with him, don't send him back here. And, you know, I mean, I have a lot of compassion for him. He didn't want to be there. He 
I mean, he was probably doing what his MOS was because he probably, you know, wasn't wasn't very good at the basic school. That's why they sent him to someplace else besides a line company. So who's at fault there? And um, but it was solved by just one of these, you know, 20, 21 year old kids saying, this is crazy. I'm taking over. And the other guy said, you know, I'm not very good at this myself. And I know that. And he was gone. So it gets solved. You mentioned that age again, and, and it still boggles my mind. And to think that we still fight wars in this manner to send essentially kids who are, are, can't, many states can't legally drink, mm-hmm. um, out to hand them a gun and say, go kill people. It's. Mm. Is, is there, do you think, looking back at writing this book and looking at this war and the wars that have been fought since, do you think there's some. Do you think that we could learn a better way to fight war? Is there a better way? As far as the age is concerned, no. You, If you have a 29-year-old Marine and you say, take the hill, he's going to go, well, well, let's think about this. Uh, why don't we just, you know, have the Army come here and, and they could surround them and, and starve them out. And, you know, the fact of the matter is the 19-year-old kid is a weapon. He he doesn't have that capability and he doesn't care about it of of saying wait a second let me think it out. It's like so what is the tragedy is not so much that that the kids are doing the fighting. They are the best weapon. There is no doubt in my mind. The tragedy is the older people who are using them as a weapon are misusing them so often. They're letting them go out there and they're sort of saying, like, we're going to put you in a situation where you get to decide whether this is a Taliban or it's some innocent, you know, sheep herder. Oh, and if you make a mistake, then we're going to court-martial you. I find that absurd. If you're going to get into a situation where you're going to unleash a 19-year-old weapon, you're in charge. And you can't say, okay, weapon, we want you to think about things because that's not the way that – I mean, you know, their brain, what is it? The, the judgment thing doesn't happen until you're 21 or 22. It, physiologically. So where we make our errors, I think, is throwing stuff on on those kids that older people should be taking those responsibilities. And I think they shirk it. And one of the reasons that they're capable of doing that is the technology. You can you can tell kids what to do from Washington, D.C. with a radio, not even being anywhere close to the action. And uh, well, I wasn't there. Yeah, but you were in charge. So I don't know, I guess that's a roundabout answer. You can't get around the fact that they're the best weapon. You just better goddamn be sure that you use them when you really need them because they're going to clean up a mess that the older people made. I've been speaking with Carl Marlantis. His new book is Matterhorn. Thank you for joining me, Carl. Thanks very much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.